Beautiful. Well, today is our biggest and most important day as people of faith and followers of Jesus. Today we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, the Holy Son of God. And this resurrection means so many things on so many levels, literally not to some people, but to all people, every human. And it makes sense that something this important actually needs to be thoroughly looked at. The evidence needs to be examined, and we need to take deep thought and consideration to the depth of whether this really happened or not, and if it did, now what? And so I want to look this morning as an evident, at the evidence before we jump in, and, and it would make sense that this would draw questions and doubts, like we're really, really talking about someone that resurrected and lived again? C.S. Lewis said it like this. He said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, infinite importance, the only thing it cannot be is moderately important. The Bible actually agrees with that in 1 Corinthians 15. It says, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. Literally, it's empty. It's void. It has no value whatsoever. So the crux of the argument, whether or not Christianity is true or false, depends basically on one thing. The thing that Christians celebrate today, which is called the resurrection. So I want us to look at this very, very big claim. That a man walked out of a tomb and then ascended to heaven. It's a big one. And what makes it difficult and challenging for us is that it was 2,000 years ago. So it didn't happen last week that we could all witness or see. None of us were actually there. And so we're going to find this morning that these claims and this evidence to support the resurrection are actually overwhelming. It's actually a stronger support than many events in history that society openly accepts and believes is true. Bible scholars trust the evidence seen through the scriptures that's reported by eyewitnesses because of a science. So actually science backs this up. A science they call textual criticism. And in textual criticism, what they do is they look at the number of documents and authors of those manuscripts and documents and how quickly they were recorded in time relative to the actual event. So we look at Alexander the Great, for example. He had only two documents proving and speaking about his life, and they were actually 500 years after his death. When we look at the Bible, we actually find 5,000 manuscripts that are all in agreement on the details of the resurrection, written by many, many people only 70 years after it actually happened. And so Bible scholars believe that what the scriptures indicate is actually true. But here's the problem. That still communicates to us consensus-based truth. It still does not communicate to us first-person eyewitness truth. Because guess what? The scholars weren't there either 2,000 years ago. So none of us have this undisputable truth because we were not there. But the evidence points to a very public crucifixion and a very public resurrection. And so we're going to be faced with the decision today. And the decision is this. Do we believe that the story is true? Did it actually happen? After we look at the evidence, I believe this will become very clear for many of us today. And I just want you to know, if you came in here today and you don't believe that Jesus rose from the grave, you are in really good company. Because his, his believers and disciples didn't believe it either. At least for a little while. So let us read this morning what C.S. Lewis calls the strangest story of all. 
Matthew chapter 28. If you need message notes, you can go ahead and raise your hand. Our ushers will come by. We do message notes because it helps people kind of follow along, read the scriptures throughout the week, and there will be some fill in the blanks for you as well. Matthew chapter 28. The scriptures indicate, After the Sabbath ended at the first light of dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to take a look at the tomb. Suddenly the earth shook violently beneath their feet as the angel of the Lord Jehovah descended from heaven. Lightning flashed around him and his robe was dazzling white. The guards were stunned and terrified, lying motionless like dead men. Then the angel walked up to the tomb, rolled away the stone and sat on top of it. The women were breathless and terrified until the angel said to them, there's no reason to be afraid. I would have been very scared. I know you're here looking for Jesus who was crucified. He isn't here. He has risen victoriously just as he said. Come inside the tomb. Come inside the tomb and see the place where our Lord was lying. Then run and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. I give you his message. I'm going ahead of you in Galilee and you will see me there. Along the way, Jesus suddenly appeared in front of them and said, Rejoice! I kind of think he said it like that. They were so overwhelmed by seeing him that they bowed down and grasped his feet in adoring worship. Then Jesus said to them, like he says to us today, throw off all your fears. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. They will find me there. If you would just bow your heads and close your eyes this morning. Thank you, Jesus, for walking out of that tomb. Illuminate us today with truth and help us go deeper with our faith. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. My favorite time of the week as a kindergartner was actually show and tell. Any show and tell fanboys in the house this morning? Kindergarten, man, we love show and tell because you could bring in all kinds of stuff that were special to you, family mementos. My favorite thing that people would bring in for show and tell was actually living things. I can actually remember a really cool Venus flytrap that worked and ate stuff. Uh, I, remember, uh, I remember puppies, and I remember a fish that we were able to feed. I loved the living things that we brought in. And what I loved about show and tell is you could actually touch it, right? It's not like you're at a museum where you can't touch. And, and it wasn't like a library where you couldn't talk. You could actually touch it and talk about it and experience it and interact with it. And I'll never forget the day when one of the young ladies in my class actually brought in peanut butter Play-Doh. It's like a thing, if you didn't know that. It's like a thing. And so she showed us the ability of peanut butter Play-Doh that she actually made this like really cool turtle. So it was like normal Play-Doh you could actually sculpt and make. And then she actually ate part of the turtle. My mind was blown. It's Play-Doh and it tastes like peanut butter? No way. So you know what I did, right? I took that Play-Doh that every kid in my class had touched and breathed on and sneezed on and did their kid thing too, right? And I partook of that Play-Doh. And my mind was blown again. Mind blown. Show and tell. I thought it was the best show and tell ever. Until I learned about the resurrection. And I learned about the empty tomb. And I learned about the invitation that God gave to every one of us as humans to actually come inside the tomb. Come and see. Why? Because Jesus is going to show and tell. He wants to give you an experience of resurrection life that will change you from the inside out. And that's the beauty. The empty tomb is an invitation to look at the evidence. He's not scared of your doubts or your unbelief or your holdups or your hangups or your habits. He's okay with those things. He says, hey, no, no, it's okay if you doubt. It's okay if you don't believe. It's okay if you're not there yet. Just come on in and experience the power of the empty tomb. 
I love that the stone was rolled away after Jesus had already left the tomb. See, the stone wasn't rolled away for Jesus to get out. He was already out. The stone was rolled away for you and I to get in. For you and I to walk in. For you and I to see where they laid him. To see that it's actually true. It actually happened. The resurrection is real. It's not an exit for Jesus, but an entering in for us. Bible scholars point to five pieces of evidence to accept the resurrection as truth. The first of which is this. The absence from the tomb. If, if, if somebody had really stolen the body of Jesus, why didn't they produce the body? Why didn't they prove that it wasn't true? They couldn't. They didn't. Why? Because it is true. The second, how about the grave clothes? If robbers were really going to come and, and, and steal the body and take, they would not have left the Armani Versace grave clothes. Literally, they were super expensive. Jesus was given to them after he died by a man named Joseph Arimathea, which was a very wealthy man. If robbers were going to come in, I can guarantee you they were going to leave with those grave clothes. What I love about the details of the text is it actually says that Jesus does laundry. He actually like took the clothes, folded them neatly, and placed them in the tomb. I've actually used that verse as a pastor for my kids. Hey, guys, Jesus did laundry. He folded neatly and put it away. Let's be like Jesus and do laundry too. I know, horrible church jokes. Just bear with me this morning. How about his presence with the disciples? We see these, these group of followers that were just in despair. They were crushed that their Savior, their Messiah, their leader had died. And all of a sudden, they turn. And they get bold and courageous and confident. And they share the gospel with thousands of people. The Bible says that 500 people saw Jesus with their own eyes. The presence of Jesus with the disciples. How about the transformation of the disciples? They went from devastation and despair to actually boldly risking their lives, being tortured, and many of them being martyred, some of which were crucified just like Jesus because of their faith. If it wasn't true, why would they die for it? If it wasn't true, why would they get separated from their family and thrown in prison and tortured and beaten for it if it wasn't true? And then the fifth one is this one. It's still happening today. It's still happening. Commentators say that, that the secret sauce, the message that the early church preached was the resurrection and the resurrection only. That was their message. That was their go-to. That was their bread and butter. You know the dubs, right? They got Steph, their go-to. Steph, pick and roll, top of the key. It's money every time, right? The go-to for the early church was just talk about how Jesus got out of that grave. Talk about how the tomb's empty. Talk about how sin and sickness and death itself has been defeated because of the empty tomb that Jesus walked out of. And so guess what? We don't need to fix it because it ain't broken. So we're going to keep preaching the resurrection to the tune of currently today, 2.7 billion people have accepted the evidence and believed the truth that the resurrection did in fact happen. 2.7 billion people around the globe. And I'll even give you two extras this morning. How about the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy? Hundreds of foretellings about who Jesus would be, where he would be born. As a baby, you don't dictate where you're born. How did that happen right? How did all these things get fulfilled that were prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus' birth? 
And then there's a man outside of the scripture known as Josephus, which was a very well-known historian. And he says of Jesus that he was a wonderful man and the doer of great deeds. He himself also testified to the resurrection. So I want us to think this morning about the tomb. See, you have to actually go to the tomb to know that it's empty. You actually have to be willing to go there with your circumstances, your feelings, your heart, your mind, your soul. What we read in the text is that it was actually women that got there first. It wasn't his big, powerful, manly disciples. They'd actually all walked away in fear. It was actually women that found the emptiness of the tomb first. Women that were bold and courageous, that were really willing to face what if he is in there? And what if my faith no longer makes sense. They had to be willing to to face their disappointment, their doubt, and their personal darkness. They had to come to terms with their feelings of loneliness and abandonment and defeat. They had to confront the growing worry and fear. And I love how pro-women Jesus is in the scriptures. He loves them. He blesses them. He believes in them. He gives them leadership. And the first people to overcome their fear and to run to find out if it was true was the women. So here's the question this morning. What are you going to do with the empty tomb? What are you going to do with that? Where where are you going to put that? You know what the soldiers did? They saw it, stood there paralyzed. They actually took money from the Jewish priest to actually not talk about it. Just, no, I'll, I'll just forget about it for the right price. We see that the Jews, what they did at the time is they actually covered it up. What are you going to do with the tomb? Are you going to ignore it? Are you going to deny it? Or maybe rationalize it away? Or are you going to be like Jesus' disciples? And are you going to believe and worship? What are we going to do with the tomb? And if it's true, what now? If we look at that evidence and we believe that overwhelming evidence, those manuscripts that point, the science of contextual criticism, if we really believe that, what does that even mean for us? The Bible says in Romans 6, 9, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. What it means for you and I is that rescue is offered to us, It is available to us. Rescue from our sins. We can have forgiveness. Not when we get our life cleaned up. No, no, no. Jesus doesn't clean the fish and then catch them. He actually catches the fish and then he cleans them. When we willingly surrender, Jesus says, I will clean you up. Like we sang today, I will make you white as snow. Not only will he forgive you from the penalty of sin, but he will forgive you from the power of sin and give you strength to live in freedom and fullness. And then someday... You'll be with him in heaven and you will actually be free from the presence of sin. I was talking to my kids and we were talking about heaven. My son is really struggling with allergies right now. He's like, man, I can't wait to get to heaven. Just no allergies. I'm like, yeah, that's awesome. My other son, Jack Challenge, he's like, I can't wait to get to heaven. He's like, dad, unlimited free egg rolls. (laughs) That's a good point, son. (laughs) That's a really good point. How about the rescue from a meaningless life? A life void of passion and purpose, a vain existence. Jesus rescues from that. He gives us gifts and a calling and meaning and reason and a why that beats within our hearts. How about the rescue not only from, but a rescue to 
a life of peace, of wholeness and fullness, a life of freedom no longer enslaved to our jobs or our career or money or success, a life that I can live for him with others for the glory of God. How about a rescue to relationship, not religion, not rules, but a real relationship with Jesus? See, we're invited to follow the man that walked out of the tomb carrying the keys to death, hell, and the grave. The crowned, resurrected king. That's the man that we're invited to follow. And the emptiness of the tomb actually reveals to us the fullness of resurrection life. Resurrection life isn't there and then. It's not the sweet by and by. It's today. It's now. It's on my commute to work. It's when I'm given a big assignment that I don't think I can complete. It's when my relationships are a mess and I don't know if I can fix the marriage. It's when, it's when everything around me is spiraling out of control. There's good news that Jesus wants to be with me here and now. Revelation 3.20 says, Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in. And we will share a meal together as friends. See, the purpose of the tomb was not just the tomb. It wasn't an end-all, be-all. It it was just a means to an end. The purpose of the tomb is actually the table. It's actually relationship. It's actually us getting to know Jesus on a personal level. It's us sharing our stuff with him. And him sharing with us, him helping us and leading us and guiding us and encouraging us and healing us, all of that actually happens at the table. See, the table signifies friendship. Did you know that the table was actually one of the main reasons that Jesus was crucified? It was actually who he was at the table with. See, the religious leaders at that time, they could not stand that Jesus would have meals with prostitutes. And corrupt tax collectors and what they would call sinners. They couldn't handle it that Jesus would associate himself with broken people that knew they were in need of rescue. I just see the irony and the deep, rich symbolism in the Jewish carpenter being nailed to a tree. But from the old, rugged cross of grace... He builds a table of friendship. The sacrifice, the love, the devotion. Did you know that the table is really, really important to Jesus? And here's why I believe it's important to Jesus. I believe the table is really important to Jesus because he's a foodie. And I believe that's why he really loves San Francisco. (laughs) So we've got some of the best restaurants in the world. Jesus is all about that foodiness. And so he's like, man, I'm about the table, I'm about SF, because it's food, it's great, right? Wine and dime, we get it, right? I think that's one of the reasons, not the main reason. The main reason why Jesus is about the table, because he's about who's at the table. See, it's really important to Jesus, the table, because you are really important to Jesus. And Jesus, he wants you at his table. He wants you at his table. And what's interesting is right after the resurrection, we see that Jesus starts showing himself to the disciples, to the people that doubted him. And almost every time we have an account, it's Jesus with the disciples at a table. And what it is, is it's him communing and connecting with them about their life. 
The last supper that Jesus had was at a table with his disciples where he actually tells them what's about to go down and he educates them on his opponent, death himself. The next meal that we hear that Jesus has is actually on the shore of Galilee, fish for breakfast with his disciples and it's a victory meal, the original OG breakfast of champions. (laughs) Happens on the Sea of Galilee with Jesus and his disciples. Again, sharing a meal to the same friends that doubted him deserted him, denied him, and disowned him. He didn't point the finger. He didn't judge. He didn't blame. He didn't bring up the dirty laundry. What did he do? He pursued them because he wanted them at his table. What happens at the table? At the table, we get to see Jesus more clearly. At the table, we, we, we actually let our walls down. At the table, our masks come off. At the table, we're actually free to be ourselves, not the person that we think everybody wants us to be or needs us to be. We can actually just be us. At the table, we experience this sincere, genuine, pure love. The Bible calls it in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You're only gonna experience that at the table with Jesus. At the table, you're going to experience celebration, laughter, joy, thankfulness abounds. That's why we're big believers that experience in worship. Why? Because heaven's going to be really loud with lots of worship. You don't like it here, you're going to hate it there. So we better learn to love it and like it here because that's our eternal future is worshiping and singing. We see in the book of Isaiah that the angels worship so loud it shook the house they were in. This is our future with him. It's celebration, it's victory, it's laughter, it's joy. At the table with Jesus, we get peace for our troubled hearts. Do I take that offer at this new startup opportunity or do I stay where I feel like God put me? I don't know what to do. This relationship, it feels like it's going nowhere, but I don't want to be single forever. Do I stay or do I go? What should I do? See, you take life's issues to the table with Jesus and he gives you peace for your troubled heart. He gets, gives you healing for your disappointment. Well, I thought it was going to go like this. They said if I just did this, it would go that way. And everything was guaranteed up and to the right. Increase, growth. Didn't happen. He can heal you from your deep disappointment. And then how about him helping us conquer the sin that the Bible says so easily besets us. It messes up our relationships. It makes life so much harder than it needs to be. And so what happens at the table is not only do we get closer to Jesus, but we actually get closer to who we really are, to the person that God has called and created us to be. That's what happens at the table. We get acquainted with him, but we also get acquainted with us. We become now our true selves. There's a painting that I want to share with you this morning. And this, is, this painting is uh, in St. Paul's Cathedral in London. I'm actually going to be able to see it for the first time in a couple weeks when man and I have a trip over there. And uh, this is a painting that was done by the English artist William Holman Hunt. And he's representing the figure of Jesus that we read about in Revelation 3.20, that he comes to the door and he knocks. The purpose of the knock is to be let in to go to the table of friendship and relationship to heal and set free and deliver and restore and celebrate. 
And so when we look at this painting, we see that there's a lot of thistles and thorns and the door is well overgrown. And this symbolizes our own faith in our own life. The neglect and the forgottenness of our faith and who Jesus is and what he did. And maybe we were around faith as a kid or maybe one of our friends at school or maybe we were never in a home like that. We were never exposed to faith. And this is what this painting symbolizes, is it symbolizes Jesus going to a door and knocking on a door that's been neglected, that hasn't had a lot of visitors, that hasn't had somebody make it beautiful. And the secret to this painting, the revelation is this, is that if you look at the door, you won't see a handle. Because the handle to the door is actually on the inside. Which indicates to all of us that only we can open the door. Only we can let him in. Only we can make a way for Jesus to come in and to sit at our table. If you would stand on your feet this morning.